0: You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19.
1: We're delighted today to be joined by Molly Ann Brody. A close friend and long-standing colleague and friend of CSIS, thank you so much, Molly-Ann, for being with us today.
0: Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for including me.
1: Molly-Ann is the Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer at the Kaiser Family Foundation, one of our closest partner institutions here in Washington and out in the West Coast. And she's the Executive Director of the Public Opinion and, and Survey Research Programs at Kaiser Family Foundation. So she carries a lot of responsibility. Molly-Ann, you've been t- terrific also as a member and contributor to the high-level panel on vaccine hesitancy and misinformation that we launched focused upon the U.S. environment. So we've pulled on your contributions and generosity in many different ways, including here today. So let's start, first of all, and ask you a very broad question here we are in the midst of a health emergency, a pandemic that's unfolded, galloped forward in, in in ways unforeseen, profound ways. Starting at the early early part of this year, it's still very much with us. Tell us, as a as a as an opinion expert and a and a survey expert, what has happened in the climate, in the opinion climate, in the United States in this period, in the midst of this burgeoning emergency? And what are the factors that are driving it outside of health? And what does it look like downstream in terms of the implications? Thank you.
0: Wow. Uh, That is a big, broad question, but a really, really important one. And, you know, I would say that, you know, like everything in 2020, I mean, 2020 has become a verb, basically, you know, it has been a fast moving public opinion environment And there's been lots to keep track of and things have changed dramatically in the last 10 months. And we started early on in this sort of March, April, really having a remarkable shared experience as Americans. I mean, we were seeing public opinion results that, you know, 80% considered it, you know, a crisis and 80% were staying home and, and they were, you know, the shelter in place and the sort of a little bit of a rally around the flag. And like, we're all in this together. And it was really, you know, after, you know, Quite a number of years, a very polarized public opinion data and, and results in, in all aspects of American life. Having this shared and universal experience was actually quite dramatic in the in what we were measuring. But I'm telling you, by summer, by early summer, all of that really dissipated, and we came back to really looking at a very polarized environment very politicalized environment, the entire sort of all things COVID-19 has been politicalized. We also had all of the protests fighting for racial equity and, you know, the issues of, you know, police violence against Black Americans. And we just, you know, we're a nation sort of, you know, burgeoning with opinions and, and very desperate experiences and very desperate opinions. And that's, really matter. So where we're left right now in October, 10 months, uh, I don't know, 10 months into the to the year, 6 7 months into a pandemic is that we have this public health emergency that forces well beyond public health science, public health principles, public health expertise, these other forces are going to drive the outcome of this pandemic. And, you know, particularly this politicalization, and we can talk about what those impacts might be, and, you know, legacy of systemic racism and racial distrust, and those have particular implications for the COVID um, pandemic.
1: And then, of course, the electoral cycle that we're in, right? when you say politicization, I don't know if you include in that the fact that we're in the midst of a national electoral cycle that's overheated and highly toxic and highly uncertain in that outcome.
0: Yeah, uh, excellent point. I mean, what are we, 19 days away from um, the 2020 election? And that is feeding it. And honestly, the outcome of this election will be one of those other forces that will drive sort of the future of the pandemic in this country. And that's something else we should talk a little bit more about.
1: Well, let me go back to your first point about the sense in the first phase of this pandemic as we headed out of winter into spring. We were entering into the period of lockdown. We were entering into a period in which our expectations were quite different than what our expectations are today. And there was a sense of national purpose and a sense of consensus and relative unity. And And when we look back today, it's important to remember those moments because today we are so toxically polarized. And yet it was six months ago, People were speaking with a lot less animosity and anger and division around this pandemic and what it meant in terms of their behavior and others' behaviors and sacrifice. There was a sense of national purpose. There was enormous compliance during the lockdown. And we weren't tearing masks off each other's faces or accusing each other of of being pro-science or anti-science. So why why do you think we had that first burst of relative national unity and consensus in that period? How do we explain that, you think?
0: Yeah, I think there were sort of two things going on. And I think the first thing is there was just so much unknown. It was so scary. I mean, you know, the uh, public health officials didn't know what was going on. You know, there was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of concern and people felt that personally. There was, um, you know, a massive increase in the number of deaths. They didn't know at that time who was more likely to die and not die. There was just a lot of unknowing. And so there was a lot of, I think, coming together sort of for a national purpose that way. The other thing is, let's, you know, be clear, the the leadership in the administration at the top had sort of a different voice kind of early on, right away at the beginning of the pandemic. Certainly, the White House and the president were, I think, universally a little bit slow in at least compared to what the public health officials had hoped they would jump on the the, the train about expressing concern. But by April, they had really changed their tune. The, the president had talked about, you know, so shelter in place, and this was something we needed to do, sort of. So we were speaking a little bit more with one voice for a very short period of time. And then that really changed after those first, I don't know, month or six weeks of shelter in place. And the message that was coming out of the White House and the administration became more and more at odds um, of the message that was coming out of the public health community and certainly some of the states that were hardest hit. And so in a sense, that short period where we did see more unity and sort of universal experience and people who were, you know, 60, 70 percent were concerned that, you know, 70 percent thought we were doing the right thing, you know, those kind of more universal numbers that was what was unique about the last 4 years you know so for you know most of the last 4 years we've seen what we're seeing now in the in the epidemic in the pandemic we're seeing these bifurcated views particularly between self-identified democrats and self-identified republicans and and i say that because i think for public health professionals we often sort of think about politics as you know, an anantha or something that we want to, like almost a dirty word, like politics shouldn't play a role in our public health um, responses. And I think in a perfect world, that's true, but we don't live in a perfect world. And I think that as public health professionals, we have to recognize where our audience is and where the community is. And we're in a very polarized environment and the public health professionals who are going to be most successful in helping to lead us through the rest of this pandemic are going to be the ones who really can address those um, different views. The a fact isn't a fact, you know, masks, there's, you know, we still have about a third of Republicans who don't think that masks are actually protective we have to be honest about where our audience is if we want to help drive the pandemic to a successful conclusion <laughs> as quickly as possible
1: we've never really faced the situation like we face today in terms of the assault upon basic science public health and the institutions of public health and your the work you've put out i mean your september survey showed not only was the was there a declining level of overall public trust, and confidence that reflected the impact of these direct assaults that were coming from the White House and from the White House's allies in the social media, party circles, media punditry, and the like, that were echoing this notion of doubting the legitimacy of, of the public health and biomedical and scientific perspective on what's happening with this epidemic, and trying to offer an alternative set of views around what was likely to happen. And it created this enormous dissonance and it drove opinion away from that. But it also created and what was quite amazing to me were this, not only did the numbers drop precipitously between April and September, but they diverged between Democrat and Republican in such a profound way. Were you shocked by that?
0: Yeah, it was a very, I mean, again, back to my first point. Watching public opinion over this sh- short period of time, it is rare to see such huge swings in shares and in in views. So, you know what you're talking about is that this politicalization of the public health emergency in that time frame. You know, we saw overall levels of trust of our public health departments and officials fall very dramatically. Trust in the CDC, trust in and Dr. Fauci fell by 16 percentage points. But that gap between Democrats and Republicans, as you say, really, really increased and became so partisan with Dr. Fauci being trusted by only 48% of Republicans, you know, versus 86% of Democrats. So that's just a huge gap in a level of trust. You know, the other thing is that the way that the conversation has gone about our our public health agencies, so trust in the FDA and the CDC in terms of whether they're paying too much of attention to politics or not and making the recommendations, about four in 10 believe that both agencies are. Uh, The public is worried that the FDA and the CDC are being interfered with in terms of making appropriate scientific recommendations. And it is this politicalization, this environment that's creating that. And, you know, the other place where we saw some big challenges was with misinformation. So I think the more politicalized environment is, it fosters this sense where misinformation not only is more easily believed, but it's much more easily shared. And we've talked a lot about the, you know, impact of social media and about the fact that really Democrats and Republicans these days get their news and information from entirely different sources. They trust different sources for their news and information. So in a sense, our country is having sort of two different Responses to a pandemic—they're having two different information environments for the pandemic. We found almost half of people held at least one misconception that when it comes to this virus, that's a lot of people. Um, and again, these the gaps between party ID and therefore the sources that you trust—you know—just can't be overlooked.
1: Well, some of the data that you had in there, in terms of Republicans. You, you had, I think, probed on five different misconceptions or areas of science, scientific knowledge and then did a comparison, a court of independents, Democrats, Republicans. Three quarters of Republicans that were polled were carrying in their minds some misconception. And that showed the power of the messaging coming from the White House that was fueling this. And so when you say politicization, part of it is a kind of, deliberate political interference in the functioning of the, of the institutions themselves. In other words, the institutions are trying to come forward with their guidance or their perspective and trying to protect that. And there's a counterset of messages that are in tension with that. But there's also these direct assaults on individuals. And there's the propositions being put forward that don't believe this, mixed messages, masks matter. No, they don't. They're a political symbol. Or hydroxychloroquine is 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 actually effective? No, it's not. And over time, I think the pub a public becomes fatigued and exhausted and confused by this whipsaw, right? You know, of 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 communications coming back and forth because there's been a struggle between our institutions, right? FDA gives emergency use authorization to hydroxychloroquine March fifteenth, and then withdraws it in early June, and then it it gets further litigated in the digital media with accusations going back and forth between the White House and and others.
0: What I would say about all that is you have to then take the, as you're suggesting, the perspective of the audience, right? And any American, no matter what their political identification, is left with trying to make up in their own mind and trying to figure out their trusted sources. And they come to really strong beliefs. So I think it was one of the the most recent podcasts you did with Heidi Larson, where she talked about this, that, you know, there really is some not knowing. There is some legitimate clarity and all of this mixed messages and distrust that's that's feeding it and feeding this environment does create a situation where you can imagine where a very you know very thoughtful intelligent well-meaning individual who believes their sources can come to a very different perception of some of these facts from a different well-meaning intelligent thoughtful you know audience member. So, you know, it's trying to not to really take seriously that the beliefs are deeply held, and that they trust their sources. I mean, Republicans are just much more likely to t- trust what Dr. Brick says than what Dr. Fauci says. And so the question here is, you know, how as a public health community, do you get on the same page about what the information and what the messaging is? And how do you counter message the real dangerous rumors that have, you know, come to start?
1: And also, you see, you see now the emergence of schisms within the scientific community, in a sense, in Britain, you had early on in the response, you had uh, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson standing outside Downing Street, flanked by the chief medical officer and the, and the minister and saying, you can ask us any questions and they, they are the authorities and they will answer, right? And, the, and, and, and they were defenders of the national health system and defenders of science. And the public response was, wow, this is, this is quite amazing. Look at this. Look at what's happened, Now, and they formed this advisory group, the SAGE advisory group, to bring the the most vaunted and respected personalities in public health and biomedical science in to advise the government. Well, now that's all broken down, and you have an anti-SAGE, an independent SAGE formed up. Here we've got the Great Barrington Declaration. We have, you know, those allied, some dissident scientists allied with Roger Atlas, coming forward with a herd immunity conception of what we should be doing. And that just feeds further into this. That's maybe a more recent development than you've captured in your survey work. But the bigger picture that you paint is a deepening bifurcation of American society, organized around partisan grounds, with wildly different concepts of what's going on, wildly different sources of affirmative information flows, and a bit of sealed off from alternatives, so what does this whether Biden or Trump wins the presidential election we're going to enter the twenty twenty one a very deeply divided country
0: and I think the implications for this pandemic and you know particularly as we move into this next stage as we 're talking so much about a potential vaccine and right now you know we're really talking about a hypothetical vaccine. So all the numbers we're getting in terms of people's willingness to, you know, thinking they're going to take it or not taking, we have to take those numbers with a grain of salt because there isn't an actual vaccine we're really asking about now. But with so much mistrust of the other side, in a sense, and, and with so much otherness, depending on who wins the election, will really change who will need to be convinced of what and by whom, you know, for there to so be uptake of, Tr-
1: uptake of a safe and effective yeah, vaccine.
0: The vac- Right. So there are some people, right, if President Trump wins this election and and President Trump's administration is responsible for the distribution of an ultima vaccine, some portion of our population is going to trust what he says and trust what his administration says. And then a big Another portion, particularly the Democrats and particularly some of the hardest hit groups are not going to trust that information and be much more hesitant. Alternatively, if all of a sudden there is a President Biden and a President Biden administration and they are talking about the safety and the effectiveness of a vaccine and talking about how it went through testing, there's going to be a complete flip on who's going to trust what they have to say and who's going to trust, you know, getting that vaccine. So in a sense, the public health community right now, and luckily we're getting close hopefully to the end of this endless election season, but for another 18 days, in a sense, you have to be developing two whole sets of messages (laughs) and two very different set and think about very different sets of uh, messengers. I mean, which is another important piece of this. Um, And so I do think that the election outcome is going to have a huge impact on how we move forward. It has the potential to switch who's going to trust who, you know, and we're just going to have to keep track of that and keep monitoring it over time. And we're going to have to take it very seriously as we do develop messages and messengers for any actual vaccine and what it really does mean for uptake and safety and all those kinds of things.
1: Doesn't it also suggest that... I mean, this is a dangerous and dysfunctional reality that we're going to, that we've entered. And doesn't it suggest that a President Biden or even a President Trump should pause and rethink what is it going to take to get back to some kind of unified effort? You know, in other words, how do we begin to sort of reverse this course and create some kind of consensus where we're not? trapped in an an endless street fight over these issues that defeat what we're trying to do. What we're going to be trying to do is get out from underneath this terrible pandemic, the economic crisis, the social instability that it it has pushed us on. And I do think that Americans, when they're offered the chance, a vaccine, go back to school, go back to work, start having vacations, travel internationally, go to your favorite restaurants, do all of those things that have been taken away from you for this period of time can come back if we can all as a common, as a common society agree that we're going to in an orderly way, get towards 65 or 70% coverage over an extended period of time while continuing to mask and social distance. And that's a, that's a message that needs to be delivered to as we get these tools, hopefully the psychology and motivation shifts But if our leadership takes a different posture, which is not stoking division and instability and mis-science and falsehoods, but saying, okay, we're all in this together and we now have a set of opportunities and we need to set aside some of these other things and think about what is real and what is not and what's in our own best interests. Because I was going to get to this with you. People don't want to be told what to think. They want to be persuaded of how they might want to be thinking. They want to be engaged and respected whether they're on whatever side of this political equation they are. And we see this in our own political culture. There is an, a deeply felt libertarianism and individualism and aversion to a strong top-down centralized set of, set of messages on any matter. And it's all long since been true on public health. So how do you see that set of challenges?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're exactly right. What it suggests is that, you know, no matter who's leading our nation, you know, in a matter of, of months, the need for diversity of voices in the messaging around any of this, the diversity of voices so that everyone sees somebody that they trust, right? We know that doctors are very trusted sources, right? We know that, you know, Republicans tend to trust certain sources and Democrats trust other sources to the extent that all those voices and all those sources can be aligned in their messaging and in their information that they're giving. That will be you know, a way forward. And I think that, you know, this is an important time to bring in another sort of diversity in our nation, and that's our diversity by race. And we've been having some very intense um, racial justice conversations in our country. And there's huge implications when it comes to the coronavirus um, vaccine and the, the the pandemic, you know, the racial disparities and the legacies of mistreatment and systemic racism and distrust of our healthcare system really are at odds with the fact that we know that the pandemic is having such a disproportional impact in, you know, black and brown communities right now. And so that is another area of diversity that we need to head, head on. You know, we had just completed a very um, groundbreaking s- survey project with um, the undefeated journalists. And we really focused on the views and experiences of African-Americans and and their distrust of the healthcare system and and how that plays out in the case of COVID. And I mean, just as you know, a, a single data point, two-thirds of black adults think that the federal government would have taken stronger actions to fight the pandemic if white people were getting sick and dying at higher rates than black people. So just, you know, as just a starting point, that level of distrust that that how we're even addressing the pandemic is based on race. And then certainly, you know, when it comes to taking a vaccine, you know, black Americans are much more likely to say that they're concerned about safety concerns and particularly about distrust of the healthcare system. Whereas whites who, are reluctant to take a vaccine they're just much more likely to think they don't need it and so i mean these are some really significant areas where again leadership is going to be paramount and leadership that has voices from trusted community members and this is you know again as you say not going to be a time for top down it's going to be community members being able to talk to community members with authority and with um with um, with that level of trust. And we're going to have to take it very seriously if we expect to, to make any you know lasting you know, progress and quick progress to stem the tide of the pandemic.
1: I mean, if I may just uh, say a few words about this work, the title of it is uh, Kaiser Family Foundation, The Undefeated Survey on Race and Health came out October 13th. Really powerful piece of work. The sample size for the, for the black population is 800. So it was, a, it was a super sample or an oversample. A couple of things just, I read through this a couple of times, and, and some of it I couldn't believe when I first read it, and I, and I wanted to get back to you and ask you, like, how shocked were you? Or, how, or were you, or were you just expecting this? But the picture that it paints of the black community in America is a picture that's of a community that's, that's bearing a very excessive financial and mental health burden by this pandemic, 40% know someone who has died. That's much higher than the white population, which is under 25%. The personal experience of perceived discrimination and racial bias is pervasive in daily life. The percentage of people who have a personal recent experience of discrimination is somewhere around 60%. And when you look at women, it's even higher. So the pervasiveness of this sense of, of racial discrimination. And the health sector, I, I knew that there was skepticism in the health sector. There's plenty of historical reasons with this. We've seen this access to the health system, suspicion in the health system many times over the years. As you point out in this story, there's a whole body of work going back a couple of decades looking at this. But the health sector comes across here as a zone, as an active key zone of discrimination in American society. And that's a disturbing and profound kind of conclusion that comes across. And when you get around to uh, what happens when vaccines come in, you've only got 17% of this population saying, yeah, definitely I would do it. And when you look at Democrats, white Democrats, 65% say, Yes, we'll take it. Black Democrats, 23%, 42% gap between white and black Democrats on will they, how are they looking at the prospect? We got an enormous amount of work to do as a country. This contrast between the population that is bearing the highest burden and damage to their lives, the disruption of their school children, their ability to put food on the table, their ability to keep their families together, all across all of those dimensions, this community is under excess stress, worse than almost any other community, perhaps na- Native Americans. The Latinx community is under stress, but it does not seem to be as extreme. First of all, were you surprised at these at these results? Because as I read and added these up, I was like, oh my gosh, I just did not comprehend the magnitude of this. And the challenge this presents where you have the most impacted, the least willing to think that the health system is going to ever come to their aid.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, as a survey researcher, I love when I get my data back. Right? I, I you know, I've been thinking about what I want to ask people. I want to, you know, find out. you know, work really hard on the questionnaire, or whatever, and you get the data back, and I'm always surprised. There's always something that is surprising, and in this case, as you say, the pers- the pervasiveness of results. There wasn't, a, you know, a single place on the survey where there was sort of a relief. In terms of these just desperate results between black and white Americans, I think the other thing that was very, I guess, just profound to me is the trends over time. So, for example, the share of black adults who believe that race based discrimination in healthcare happens very or somewhat often has increased pretty dramatically. Over the last 20 years. So we last asked that question in 1999 and 56% of blacks said that there was race based discrimination happens very or somewhat often. It's now seven in 10. I mean, so that's a huge increase. When you talk about ask Black, you know, men, you know, whether it's a good time to be a Black man um, in America today, you know, it's a quarter say it is right now, but that is down from 60% in 2006. So I think that it's not just the, the general um, pervasiveness of all these results, but the fact that it's growing in this community and it's going in the wrong direction, I guess. And it's going in the wrong direction at exactly the time that we have an unprecedented public health emergency, the pandemic, which has also created a really unprecedented economic emergency and that that economic emergency is so disproportionate among this exact same population. So this group of our, you know, fellow Americans are just getting hit from all sides. They're getting hit on the economic front. They're getting hit on the health front. And we're trying to address it in a context where there is this, you know, historical discrimination and this historical distrust that we haven't made any progress in terms of overcoming. And, you know, it just creates sort of the perfect storm. I mean, really the perfect storm. And I think if there's any, you know, area that we have to just focus all energy on and to get everyone around the table and to get the diversity of voices around the table and to get the messages and the messengers around the table. It's really, you know, with a focus on this group of our fellow Americans.
1: Well, you've made a major contribution. I know this is just fresh out, so you probably don't have yet an accurate gauge of how this will be consumed and acted upon, but... But I think this this is a very moving and powerful piece of work. And congratulations on that.
0: I would just say, I would just to make a plug, I encourage every listener to go either on our website or go up to the Undefeated, where you can read all the stories. The stories from the journalists are so powerful. I mean, as a data person, I love the numbers, but when a journalist, a talented storyteller like the Undefeated's editors and reporters are, when they take that data Talk to people. Put it in 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 the real world. It brings it to life, and it makes it really just so much even more powerful. So I just want to do a plug for the articles themselves. It's very much worth a, a read.
1: Before we run out of time, I just want to ask you to reflect. You know, you you you're a premier pollster, survey ex research expert. You've been doing this for for some time in many different contexts. But what does it mean to be conducting polls in the midst of a pandemic, an economic crisis, turbulence surrounding racial injustice, high uncertainty, highly fluid, a period that's just fraught with tensions and anger and divisions and polarization? What does that mean? I mean, this is how do you approach this? How do you have to adapt your practices and your approaches in an environment like this that is really so exceptional?
0: Yeah, um, it is certainly challenging, and we'll talk about the, the sort of methodological and the way we have to like logistically adapt. But you know, taking a step back, the the reason I do this work, and the reason KFF is so committed to this work, is because it is one of the premier ways to give voice to people to make sure that everybody has a voice in these big political debates that are affecting our country. I mean, I get up every day and I do my survey research, not because, you know, just to to produce the numbers for myself, but it's to make sure that all Americans of all walks of life, particularly those who don't necessarily have always a seat at the political table, can have their voices and their experiences showcased and and represented and shared in these conversations, these conversations among policy elites and among journalists elites and among politicians. And so that, that they, their voices and what's actually happening to people. So on one hand, Doing this kind of work at this point in such a unique period of history is more powerful than ever because it sort of matters now more than ever that the real life experiences, particularly of those who have had COVID experiences in their household or among their family, people with chronic conditions who have really had to be locked down and sheltered in place, people who have lost their job, have been furloughed who are having trouble putting food on their table like making sure that their experiences are front and center in the context of all the conversations about what are we going to do about this pandemic what are we going to do about this economic crisis so in many ways I would just say that our work is more more important than ever and we're approaching it with even that much more passion and that much more mm-hmm. fear for yeah. because of the importance of what we're doing right now in terms of how we do it, you know, there's certain things that are easier. People aren't going to the office every day, we actually can reach them on the phone. So I mean, that was actually one of the the funniest kind of, you know, unintended consequences of a pandemic early on, is that actually getting responses to our surveys was a little bit easier. And also, these issues that we've talked about are so personal for people, we're talking about the health and well being of their of their families, we're talking about deep, feelings of racial injustice. These are topics that people wanna talk about and that people want their voice to be heard. And
1: they don't project their distrust onto you. You don't have to go the extra mile to get people to trust you and open up and share with you how they th- feel.
0: Yeah, I mean, our you know the way we design our methods and our questions are really to make sure that any answer is a valid answer. We have no judgment and we have no expectations of what you're gonna to say to us. We just wanna know what you think. And by setting that up early on in a questionnaire and by asking fair and balanced questions, people feel very confident telling us what they think. And we have, you know, through all sorts of, you know, methodological tests and things, we're not getting misinformation. I mean, the fact that three quarters of Republicans tell us that they believe something that we kind of know factually to be incorrect, and they have no trouble telling us that. I mean, they really believe it is factually correct. So they're not... You know, they're not, we're not seeing that there's any sense of trying to like hide your true feelings or your true beliefs. We, you know, on the survey, there were plenty of white Americans who expressed beliefs about that there isn't racism, that there isn't systemic racism, that they, they don't believe that there's unconscious bias. Um, and they were, you know, certainly willing to express those opinions as much as African Americans were willing to express their opinions. So by setting up methods and, a level of trust and respect of our respondents we get i think you know very legitimate responses and 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 most importantly we're trying to represent all views we're trying to make sure that people from all walks of life are included in the in the survey research that we can with with confidence speak accurately about a group's views or about a subgroup's views. I think in the Undefeated Project, the views of Black mothers are among the most powerful. They, I mean, talk about a group of Americans who are struggling under the weight of the pandemic. I mean, I think all mothers, all parents are recognizing the challenges of homeschooling right now. And, you know, but if you think about the added challenges of the disproportionate impact of the of the virus and the disproportionate economic impact, the voices of black mothers in our surveys were particularly powerful, it's just one example.
1: Two two closing questions. First is, looking back over the last 10 months, what was the biggest surprise to you?
0: Honestly, the biggest surprise was at that period where we were having universal responses. I was most surprised in that period where after so many years of measuring bifurcated and, you know, having to break every question down by party or by some demographic differences for a good month or two, I was seeing 85%, 75%, you know, the the vast majority of Americans were experiencing and feeling the same about something happening in America. And that was a surprising moment for me.
1: So the closing question is the one that we ask everybody that comes on this podcast, which is, all right, you've painted a picture that's pretty disturbing, right? And and, and very chaotic, very divided, and not moving in the direction we want things to move. So what gives you hope and optimism looking ahead?
0: I think what gives me hope and optimism is that there are so many Americans who have been so willing to take serious sacrifices on behalf of the public health of the nation. They have stayed home from work. They did shelter in place. They are wearing masks. They are doing bubbles. And, you know, they're doing that not necessarily because they themselves are in a very, very dangerous demographic group that can get really sick from the virus, but because they know it's the right thing for the country. And I think that is what gives me hope at a moment like this. If the leaders and if our experts can get their messaging straight, can keep working on their, you know, facts and analysis, include a diversity of vo- voices and communicating those I believe that as a nation, the American public wants to move forward, defeat this current crisis and get back on track to our nation and our recovery.
1: That's very eloquent and powerful. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us today and taking so much time to to share with us your insights. But thank you so much for the for the great work that you do and that Kaiser Family Foundation does as an institution and all of the generosity that you you and your colleagues at Kaiser have shown us at CSIS over the years and, and up to the present. So we're really grateful and thanks. This was a wonderful conversation.
0: Thank you. And I just want to thank you and CSIS for all the leadership you are providing in this arena. I mean, it is groups like you and your partnerships and your high-level panel and it's those are the things that are going to make a difference in the future. So thank you very much.